It's time, once again, for Deep Thoughts. A number of years ago, I showed up to preach at one of the campuses of Central where I pastor. And this elderly man I'd never met before confronted me with something on his mind that was clearly bothering him. He said to me, how can you pastor in this church with a wife who has an arm full of tattoos? Now, I'm not proud of this, um, but instead of giving him, you know, a gentle, courteous answer, I retorted back, why do you trim your beard and cut the hair on your temples? And I wasn't done. I said, do you eat shellfish or pork? Now, all of those laws are also found in the same chapter of Leviticus as the verse about tattoos. Now, first off, I think my wife's tattoo sleeve is not only beautiful, but it's also full of meaning for our family. Second, that was years ago, and I'd like to think... I would have been a little more gracious in my response today. Uh, And third, what do we do with all of the Old Testament laws? Isn't it picking and choosing and inconsistent to continue to keep some to this day and then seemingly ignore others altogether? Now, not only are large portions of the Old Testament difficult to understand because of their ancient context historically and complexity theologically, how to interpret the Old Testament in light of the new makes many passages doubly difficult to understand theologically. So we're not under the law, but under grace, right? Yes. But then Jesus comes along and says things like, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so what is the place of the law of the Old Testament in the Christian life? In this brief, a deep thought episode, I want us to look at how to interpret Old Testament law. As Christians, we believe that our law keeping cannot save us. Only Jesus can. And yet those who are saved by Jesus joyfully respond with obedience to the law. Or as Martin Luther put it, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Because those who are saved by Jesus want to obey Jesus. They are obedient to him, but obedient to all the laws of the Old Testament or only some? And is it selective and inconsistent of us to obey some of the Old Testament laws and seemingly neglect others? How do we as Christians approach the law. Well, the following are what I hope will be helpful rules for interpreting Old Testament law. And while these aren't perfect categories and are a bit of an oversimplification, these three categories of Old Testament law can be helpful. Let's call the first category the moral law. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, which means law. The Torah was given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai, and the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, which we find in Exodus chapter 20. The whole law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. What are they? They're the righteous and eternal standard for our relationship with God and with others. We could call these laws with ethical. These are laws with ethical or moral categories. 
Second, the civil law. These are laws that governed Israel as a nation, laws pertaining to guidelines for war, restrictions around land use, debt and loan regulations, and penalties for violations against Israel's legal code. These are laws with social or civil categories. Third, the ceremonial law, things like regulations for worship in the sanctuary, in the temple, for religious festivals, and the sacrificial system, they fall under this third type of the law, from clean and unclean foods to instructions for ritual purity, the guidelines for the conduct of priests, to detailed instructions for offering sacrifices, and I mean detailed, check out the book of Leviticus, and things like tattoos. These are laws with religious, ceremonial categories. And so track with me here. The ceremonial law, this third category, is no longer in effect. Why? Because all of its regulations pointed forward to Jesus. And so we interpret them in light of Jesus. Colossians 2.16 tells us, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are all ceremonial laws. Why? Verse 17 says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so what that means is now that Jesus has offered himself as the once for all atoning sacrifice for our sins, no more sacrifices are needed. In fact, to continue to follow the old ceremonies would actually be to deny the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. There are two ceremonies in effect in the church. These are sometimes referred to as ordinances, sometimes referred to as sacraments in the church. And they are baptism and the Lord's Supper, also known as communion. And look, they are both cross-related. So that's, that's, that's sort of my response regarding all of the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. What about the civil laws? Well, the civil law is no longer in effect, but for different reasons. The church is not a state. We have a king and his name is Jesus, but his kingdom is spiritual and his commission to his disciples is transnational, right? It, it transcends borders. So the ceremonial law and civil law were types and figures pointing forward to the cross and kingdom of Jesus. But what the New Testament does not do is declare an end to God's moral law as the standard for our lives. In fact, the New Testament reaffirms practically all the moral laws in the Old Testament. So while the moral law also finds its fulfillment in Jesus, these moral commands continue to find their expression through the spirit-empowered, God-honoring lives of followers of Jesus. Okay, there's the the big idea in a nutshell. Now I'm just going to give you some bonus material. Okay, these aren't original to me, but I found them really helpful in interpreting the Old Testament. And and what we can look at next is the three uses of the moral law. We can see them as a, a map, muzzle, and mirror. Those are the three uses. The law as a map, meaning a law, the law is a map that guides our conduct. It's useful for instructing us in righteousness. It serves as a map for us. It helps us know what is pleasing to God and shows us how to live. The second use of the law is the law as a muzzle that restrains evil. The commandments 
with their accusation of guilt and threat of punishment, discourage people from sinning against God. And so this use of the law is as a deterrent that has the preventative purpose of keeping God's people away from sin. It's like a parent who says, don't touch the element on the stove. You'll get burned. It will cost you. Or like uh, police and judges telling us, lawmakers saying, you will go to jail. You will serve a penalty if you do this thing or that thing. So the law as a muzzle that restrains evil. Third, the law as a mirror that shows us our sin. So the Ten Commandments, right, the summary of the law, they expose our sinful motives and behaviors for what they are, the transgression of specific commands. And so this is how the law helps us, not by saving us, but by driving us to the Savior, like a mirror that shows us that our face is dirty, which drives us to cleansing water, the law and our realization that we don't measure up to it drives us to the cleansing of Jesus in our lives. The Puritan preacher Thomas Boston put it this way, the law discovers the disease and the gospel, the physician. The law helps us see that we are broken, that we are sinful. And the gospel shows us redemption, shows us salvation found in Jesus. All right, more bonus material. Here we go. Each commandment does four things at once. First, revelation, meaning it gives us insight into the character of God. Second, every commandment gives us confrontation, meaning insight into our own character where we don't measure up, where we break the law. Third, it gives us instruction. It charts a new path to walk by God's grace. And fourth, it gives us promise. See, because of the new covenant, God promises to write his law on our hearts. So every one of the 10 commandments, which stand as a summary of God's moral law, gives us insight into the character of God, an accurate indictment on our own character, the way forward made by the gospel and gives us gospel hope. Now, one last thing. I'm going to give you six rules for interpreting the law. There are more, there are other others, but, but these six I think are really helpful and rounded. The first is called the biblical rule. Now, every commandment must be understood in the context of the entire Bible. This is just faithful biblical interpretation. We interpret a text or a verse in light of its context and what the whole Bible has to say. In the context of the Ten Commandments, all the prophets and apostles, New Testament writers, accepted the abiding authority of God's moral law. So that's the biblical rule for interpreting the law. Then there's the inside-outside rule. And so here's how this works. The Ten Commandments are internal as well as external, meaning they demand inward integrity as well as outward conformity. God isn't just merely after us doing the right things on the outside. Uh, they deal with our souls as well as our bodies. For example, what the seventh commandment forbids is not just inappropriate sexual activity, but sinful sexual desires. When Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters five through seven, he's not bringing in new laws. He's just revealing the full extent of the law. It's not just an outward do not commit adultery. It's also an inward do not have inappropriate sexual desires. 
Third, the two-sided rule, meaning every commandment is both positive and negative. And so this helps us see that there, where a sin is forbidden, the corresponding duty is required. And where a duty is required, the corresponding sin is forbidden. So most of the commandments are a list of don'ts. Don't make other gods. Don't steal. Don't lie. And so the two-sided rule helps us see that there is a flip to every command. Each one condemns a particular vice and commends a particular virtue, the two-sided rule. The true intent of each commandment is to tell us what to do as well as what not to do. For example, the commandment not to murder simultaneously requires the preservation of life. The command not to steal also demands that we give generously to people in need. That's the two-sided rule. Here's the fourth one, the rule of categories. Each commandment stands for a whole category of sins. It not only governs the specific sin it mentions, but all the sins that lead up to it and all the supposedly lesser sins of the same kind. For example, you shall not murder. Jesus explained that it also condemns hatred. Even if you have hatred for someone in your heart, essentially you've committed murder. So in addition to outright murder, the sixth commandment, forbids any form of physical violence, domestic violence, and even neglect of personal health, as well as everything that leads up to these sins, such as fits of anger. Fifth, there's the brother's keeper rule. We are not allowed to encourage someone else to do what God has told us not to do. Or put positively, well done, that would be applying the two-sided rule we talked about earlier. Put positively, we must do everything in our power to help other people keep God's law. For example, the Ten Commandments require parents to teach their children how to put God first, how to tell the truth, and so on. Sixth and finally, the law of the tables. The first table of the law, there's two tables of the law in the Ten Commandments. The first four are God-oriented, and the next six are other or others-oriented, neighbor-oriented. And so the first table of the law always takes precedence over the second. Our duty to God in the first four commandments always governs our duty to one another in the last six commandments. Said another way, our love for neighbor is subject to our love for God. Look, we we must get the order right here as followers of Jesus. The gospel informs the law and the law can't save us. Only Jesus can. And so leading with the law rather than the gospel will only condemn us. But listen, we keep the law. We keep the law, but not as a way of getting right with God, Rather, as a way of pleasing the God who made us right with him. In that light, the law is not a burden to crush us, but a gift to guide us. Our motivation for law keeping isn't to merit salvation. It's grace driven effort. Because the gospel is so amazing, we want to follow God's commands out of joyful response. The Apostle Paul helps us when he writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's Romans 3.28. And then he goes on to say in verse 31, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And he says, By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. By faith, 
we receive the gift of Jesus' law-keeping. So the way we uphold the law is by turning our backs on our, war- our warped efforts to keep the law, by putting our confidence and trust in Jesus who satisfied all the law's demands on our behalf. The law therefore shows us God's moral character and righteous requirements. They are a map, a muzzle, and a mirror. But as the Apostle John wrote, his commandments are not burdensome. And the reason they're not burdensome is that our salvation doesn't rest on our great law-keeping. It relies on our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly on our behalf. So back to tattoos. Here's the deal. (laughs) If you don't keep the rest of the laws in Leviticus 19, and the tattoos you want don't dishonor God or others, have at her. But ultimately, everybody, have salvation by grace through faith in Jesus tattooed on your hearts above all else. We will be back with more fresh new episodes in the very near future. Thanks for listening to Deep Thoughts. I hope it helps you in fostering deep faith.